welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. morning we're going to be moving further in our study of Colossians 1. I'll be reading the sweep of scripture from Colossians 1 15 through 20 and we'll begin to explore it together. So let's hear the word of God. Paul writes about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What a text, what a savior, what we have to learn of him. Father, now come and move in our midst through your perfect word. Let us see Jesus. In his marvelous name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, it's estimated that the human eye can discern 10 million different colors. So men, you have no excuse now when you go shopping with your wives. Absolutely none. You have to say, that's a fabulous color. Seriously, the human eye can discern, according to the experts, somebody just got that one, 10 million different colors. 10 million colors? That's an amazing testimony to the creative power of God, isn't it? Well, if your eyes can discern, if you've got factory issue eyes, they, they can discern 10 million colors, you should have no problem with a simple test, and I want to give it to you. Now, to avoid any embarrassment, I don't want you to answer out loud. You can just answer in your head. Are you ready for your test? What color is this? Now, if in your head you answered white, you're wrong. A few of you are ahead of me. I wasn't ahead of me till I studied this, but nope. This is actually an amalgamation of colors. Sir Isaac Newton, centuries ago, put together the, uh, the design of the spectrum. He called it the color circle. It, was, it had been discovered by other scientists and physicists, but he was the first to put into one piece of knowledge the fact that all color, every color, every one of the 10 million plus, is really a gathering and a mixing of different beams of light. You've heard of the spectrum? How many? 
the colors of the spectrum. Some of you, Isaac Newton categorized all of that, came up with a color wheel, and he identified there are certain spectral colors that mix into every color and make that color so. What are the spectral colors? Red, orange, yellow, green, cyan, indigo, and blue-violet. All of those colors mix to create every color that we see. Now, white, he put at the center of his color wheel because white is produced by mixing different light beams. Surprisingly, this is not white. It's a mixture of the three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. Pretty amazing, huh? I was stunned when I read it. But then it led me to think about our understanding of all kinds of things in our world that we really think we know a lot about, but we really don't know everything. So the lesson in all this is there really can be a lot more to something you thought you already knew all about, right? What if that came to be true, not only about things, but about people? How about a certain individual, the greatest one, the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it possible that there are dimensions to who he is, truths about what he's done, colors of the spectrum of understanding of Christ that we don't know very clearly, and yet they're all revealed in the Word of God as we study it? The answer is absolutely. I mean, think about your own Christian experience. For the youngest Christian, I know this was true of me when I trusted Christ as a college student, I didn't know much. In fact, in the early days, all I could say to people as my testimony was, Jesus is my Savior. That's what I knew theologically about him. I was like the, the, the younger Christians that, for, that John writes about in 1 John 2 when he says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. That's what young spiritual children know, and that's the extent of it. Jesus is my Savior. But then John writes about others, young men in the faith who had learned deeply the word of God. And then finally, he said, I write to you fathers. The implication is I'm writing to you men and women that are spiritually mature in years and in knowledge, for you know him. The word is gnosko, to know deeply by experience. You know him. So the younger Christian knows Jesus as my Savior. The older Christian, John said, has now gone into the, the, the breadth and the depth of knowing Jesus through the revealed word of God. And we know him to be a Savior and even more. I could probably ask you at this moment, tell me out loud, older Christians, what do you know is true about Jesus? And, and you'd answer with Jesus is the king. Jesus is almighty God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is changeless. Jesus is, and you could just fill in quite a, a lot of theology, couldn't you? So it is possible that there is a lot more to learn about someone that we already thought we knew all about. Now, the spiritual enemy of our souls and of this world knows this, of course, and so one of his greatest goals is to minimize what people know and understand about Jesus. It makes clear sense. The goal of the enemy is to minimize what people know about Jesus or to confuse or lessen what they know. We see this in the world around us, of course, in the, in the pathetic impressions and understandings that the, that the lost world allows itself to have about Jesus. But even in the church... The enemy is working through false teachers to create 
a lesser knowledge of Jesus to divert believers from understanding. And that, of course, is why the epistle to the Colossians was written, as I've reminded you. It was to show two things, the greatness of Jesus and to expose the false teaching of certain people teaching in that church. What were they doing? They were being used of the enemy to minimize Jesus. They were teaching the Colossian believers that Jesus is not God, never has been. God is a virtually unknowable being, far outside of our ability to understand. And this God has sent out emanations over the eons of history, spiritual beings, if you will, that we don't really understand. Some of them actually are angels. And Jesus, they were telling the Colossians, is just another created being who sometimes appears as an angel. He's one among many. But since he's not God, he could not have died to fully save you. And so these Colossians were getting all this strange teaching, which, by the way, is out there today. As I mentioned before, every cult Christian sect in America today is dominated by the Colossian heresies, that Jesus is not God. Jesus could not have died to fully save you. Your works have to add on to it. Jesus was not the sum total of the truth. Our new revelation, these false teachers say, has to add on to what Jesus said. And on and on we go. He's not God. He's not a full savior. You have to know more from us and do more for this strange, unreachable God. And if anything, Jesus is just one of many angels. He's a created being. That was what they were being taught. It flies around our culture today. The goal of the enemy, minimize Jesus. And so what's the answer of the Bible? Maximize Jesus. That's why we're in the Word of God today and why the Word of God opens level after level of truth about the greatness of Christ. Can you ever fully know Jesus Christ? My opinion, no. Not in this life and even in eternity because He is the infinite God. And though you and I will be perfected in eternity and we will have resurrection bodies in eternity and we'll be without sin in eternity, we're still going to be finite beings, won't we? And so a finite being never gets to the end of infinite discovery. I'm excited about that. We'll never fully know all of the greatness of Christ. We'll learn about him forever. Well, the Bible gives us different colors of the spectrum about Jesus. And Paul here in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, gives us one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture about the full greatness of Jesus. It's as if Paul is painting in colors. And as I looked at this as a Bible student, I saw five primary colors that Paul takes a brush and weaves into this description. In verse 15, you see, he talks about Jesus as the image of the invisible God. There's one color. Then he talks about, about him as the creator of all things. In verse 16, that's a second color, creator. Then he goes on and talks about him in verse 18 as the head of the body, the church. There's yet another beautiful color. Then he goes on and talks about him also in verse 18 as the firstborn from the dead. That's talking about his place in resurrection history and what it means for us. There is yet another color. And then the last color is in verse 19, going into verse 20. He is the, full, uh, he is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God Almighty. 
Five primary colors that deepen your understanding of the greatness of Jesus. They're dimensions, if you will. And today, due to time and just the length of this passage, I'm going to move through the first two. We'll visit the other three next time. Let's take a look at this passage. Dimension one, the first color of the spectrum that Paul places his brush to is this. He teaches us that Jesus is the perfect picture of the invisible God. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. You see, when it comes to God, humanity has always had a problem. We're created people in time and space with finite abilities. We live in a material context and we cannot see the invisible Yet the scripture says that God is spirit and no one has ever seen him. So man, humanity has always had a problem. It cannot see God in his essence. It only has evidences of God, Romans chapter 1. And by the way, all the evidence that God has left us in creation particularly is adequate enough for us to know that there is a God. Scripture says you're without excuse if you deny what creation says. But we're left to grope after him. Now, people have two responses to the idea that they cannot see God. One is the materialist. I was one. Others in our society are materialists. We simply deny that God exists. I cannot see him. I cannot encounter him. He is someone you tell me about, but I'm going to deny him. I'm a materialist. Others are what I would call the spiritualist, and they are left to imagine him. Since God hasn't revealed himself, since I can't know him or understand him, I am going to construct him in my own mind. He's a spiritual reality of my own making. This is the most popular religious position in America and in the West today. In fact, worldwide, the spiritualist, there are countless ideas of God in countless minds as people imagine him. Now, the Bible does say it is a problem in a sense that we cannot capture God. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus did say, God is spirit. In John chapter 1 in the Bible, in verse 18, as, as Christ is introduced in this gospel, in verse 18, the, the gospel of John says, no one has ever seen God in his essence, in who he is. God is invisible. He is not knowable by human means. That means we can't understand him. We need to have him revealed. But we have this passion to know him because we were created to know him, created in his image with the ability to relate to truth and desire to see and know our maker and conscience within us, according to Romans 2, drives us to believe that there must be a God and I must be accountable to him. And so we wrestle with that and we want to know him. Moses experienced that in Exodus 33, a follower of God, but facing immense challenges. And he said, show me your glory. But God said, you can, no one can see me fully in my glory and my purity and live. My beauty and my glory incinerates sin. That's the way it is. So no, Moses, I can barely show you the shadow of my, my passing in the cleft of the rock. So not only can we not understand him, if he did reveal himself in his fullness, we couldn't stand before him. And so we're left in this dimension of unknowing. Well, the Bible says that God sent us a solution to that by sending us his picture. Jesus, in Colossians 1, is the image of the invisible God. 
This doesn't just mean Jesus is God and was God. It means that when, when, when people encountered Christ, they were encountering God portrayed in a human body, fully God and also fully man. He never stopped being God for one breath of his earthly existence. When people looked at him, touched him, listened to him, followed him, thought about him, or were touched by him, they were seeing God. He is the image of God. The Greek word is icon. We have the English word from it. An icon in our society is somebody we worship. That's really not the original meaning of the word. An icon in the Greek culture that Paul wrote in was a statue. And it also could be used to describe a portrait. A small portrait that a person in the Roman culture would have painted of their, of their wife or their husband or their lover. And they would carry that little icon. It was an image of one who was not with them. Jesus Christ came to earth as the image of the one who is not with man because he is unknowable and unseeable. He's, he's far exalted, but Jesus came to show us a portrait of the invisible God. When Jesus said in John uh, chapter uh, 14, he talked about the fact that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God sent this portrait. The, the Greek word also means an exact rendering. When you were seeing the portrait, you were seeing an exact rendering of the one that it was to illustrate. It was a beautiful thing. In fact, the Bible goes even farther. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he, Jesus is the express image of God's person, the exact representation of his glory, the text says. The word image there is not icon. It's a different word that meant the image from a stamp put into clay or an engraving tool. Very precise, very accurate. You engraved from the original an image that was as accurate as could be. Engraving today doesn't happen much, but actually it does every day at the United States Mint where they engrave $5 bills. And you'll know as you follow this that because of forgeries that are rampant in our society, every few years they have to come up with what they call new watermarks in the original. And they have a, a template for the $5 bill locked up in some vault somewhere at Fort Knox, I guess. That's the original. And every, it's an engraved original, and everything laid onto that is printed in exactly that likeness. That's the closest I can get to Hebrews 1.3, where Jesus is the exact likeness of God. He is God. Everything you saw about him, he portrayed as God. So the beauty of this is that we now have the ability to understand God, and God walked among us in John chapter 14. This marvelous passage in John 14, when, when Jesus was toward the end of his ministry and he was heading toward the cross and meeting with his disciples the night before, Philip spoke up and showed the human problem. Verse 8 of John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us, the human condition. We can't know God. Show us the Father. The, human, the, the spiritual answer is verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to me, show us the Father? The, the answer, the portrait was right in front of Philip, but he didn't understand it. So the Bible says God has sent a solution. He sent us a portrait of himself in Jesus. Now, how can this add some dimensions to your life and your relationship with Jesus in your everyday world? Well, I would say that it reminds you of two things. 
Number one, the words that, uh, that he spoke when he came. When Jesus spoke, listen, God was speaking. Only human being to ever visit the planet 100% of the time, 100% accuracy, God spoke through him. This is why the Bible said he was the greatest of all prophets. When Jesus spoke, he didn't occasionally hear from God. He didn't have to receive prophecy from God. He spoke as God because he's a member of the Trinity and he was in a perfect relationship with God the Father all the time. So the words that Jesus spoke were the words of God. Look at verse 10 of John 14. Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In other words, we're a trinity. We're God together. We've always existed together. He's present with me right now in this room, Philip. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now look at verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus spoke what the Father wanted him to speak. Jesus spoke in unity with the Father. When you heard Jesus speak, God was speaking. Years ago, they used to come up with Bibles. You may have one called Red Letter Edition Bibles. How many of you guys know that? Thank you very much for sharing your maturity with me. Red letter Bibles. I got me one once when I was a young Christian. And, and I, I thought, well, that, that must mean there's something unique about the, the statements of Jesus as compared to the rest of the Bible. Um, that's a mistake. That's not true. The red letter Bible was really designed to emphasize that when Jesus spoke in human time, God was speaking. But it did cause me to think about the fact that when Jesus spoke, you were hearing from God. I meet people who are critics of Christ, but they still want to be spiritual. They say, I don't have a lot of use for Christianity, but I do like Jesus. I'm intrigued by Jesus. And that's an open door for me because I can say, well, fantastic. Let's get together and talk about some of the words of Jesus. And people, when they think about the words of Jesus, they, they cherry pick the words of Jesus and think only about comfort or only about inspiration. Really, the promises that Jesus gave that were comforting or inspiring were to those who had come to believe in him as Savior and Lord. But there is a whole body of Christ's teaching that is not so easy to take. Many of his words were hard words. Don't forget this. He had much to say about the depth and the danger of human sin and the universality of it. He had much to say about the blindness of people that refused his cross and simply wanted to follow him for the benefits and never admitted their great need of eternal salvation. And finally, of course, you've heard this before, no human prophet recorded in the Bible ever spoke and taught more deeply and fearfully and certainly about hell. And so I would say to you that if Jesus is the perfect picture of the invisible God, we should not forget the words that he spoke when he came. We have to take them all in their power and all in their implications. We don't cherry pick his words. Don't avoid hearing them and don't avoid sharing them. Second way it can impact your life is to understand the role that he took when he came. People say, I can't handle the fact that Jesus spoke so much about hell. Well, I can because at the end of his life, he went and conquered it for you. He could speak about it all he wanted because he knew he was going to a cross where he would make a way for you to never go there. And that's the role he took. Think about it. When God came to the planet, the role he took was as a suffering servant. Philippians 2. Jesus being found in human form, verse 8. 
Verse 7 says he took on himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Philippians 2, 7. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was that designed to do? To buy you out of hell. If you will listen and turn to the master of it all. So yes, Jesus spoke to warn about eternal consequences regarding him, but then he died to save you and open the pathway for you. Jesus, the perfect picture of the invisible God, he came speaking total truth, and he came as a total servant and a perfect Savior. Here's the second dimension with it. We wrap it up today. Take a back, look back at Colossians 1, please. Now he talks about the fact that Christ, the firstborn of, a, of all creation, verse 16, is the one who, by whom all things were created. Here's the second dimension. Jesus is the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe. Second color in the spectrum today. Jesus, Paul says, is not only the perfect portrait of the invisible God, but he's also the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe. Paul continues to magnify Jesus against the minimizing of the Colossian false teachers who said totally the opposite. Jesus was just another created being. He was a created angel, but he's just a form of being. That's not what the Bible says. If he's a created being, he's lost in a fallen universe like any other created being, and he cannot save. Of course, the devil would like to minimize Jesus into that small little circle. The major cults do it today. All spiritualists do it today. They invent a Jesus of their own imagining. But the answer to the word of God is, oh, no, he's not only fully God, the perfect portrait of God, verse 15, but he is creator God. He created everything at the beginning because he is the eternal son. When I was a new Christian, the first time this truth was opened to me in a Bible study, I was shocked. But then very quickly, it made sense. If he's God, of course he's creator. If he's God, he's eternal. If, if God is a trinity, they're always been together, and everything they do, they do together. Jesus said it in John 8, I do nothing that I do not see the Father doing. So they all operate in unity. It began to really deepen my worship of Christ. You say, how in the world did all that happen? I thought the Bible says in Genesis 1, that God spoke it into being. God the Father, the big God. <laughs> Some people might think. Well, you know, God operates in the unity of the Trinity. It's a mystery. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's difficult to understand, but it's a doctrine revealed in Scripture. There's a sense in which everything the Father does, the Son and the Spirit also do, and vice versa. See, Christ is God. He has all the attributes of God, all the eternality of God, and he was, he's been involved in all the doings of God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was eternal. He was there at the beginning. When, when beginnings began, Jesus had already been there. <laughs> He's the eternal one. Eternal doesn't mean you last forever. It means you've always been. There's a difference between the word eternal and everlasting. You and I are going to be everlasting in heaven, but we all had a beginning. The eternal never began. 
it's always been. God said, I am that I am. I have always existed. Jesus had always existed. And when it came time to create the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, the word was there. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And all things came into being through him. He was present at creation. Hebrews 1-2 makes it clearer. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. If you doubt Jesus created the universe, there is a scripture in another place telling you he did. John 1-3, right after the passage I read to you, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creator, the eternal creator of the universe. Who created the world? God did. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The scripture says they were all there. Genesis 1 says God the Father spoke. Genesis, all the verses I just read to you said the Son was there as the creative power. And then Genesis 1-2 said the Holy Spirit was there brooding over the face of the waters. How did that happen? I don't know. But he is that he is. Theologians have groped about this, and some have said perhaps the Father's role was to speak it, to be so. The Son's role was, empower, was to empower it to be, and the Spirit's role was to order it all. We don't know. But Jesus Christ was there. Now, if he's creator, let me just wrap it up by talking about four shining realities in these verses that Paul gives us about creator Jesus. Hold on with me to the end here. Reality number one, he says, Jesus created both realms of all that is. What are you talking about? Both realms? Yes, the physical and the spiritual realms. Look at the text. All things were created by him in heaven, that's the spiritual realm, and on earth, that's the material physical. Visible, that's the material physical, and invisible, that's the spirit world. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things physical and spiritual, visible, invisible, human, angelic, were created by him through him, and for him. That's, a, that's, a, that's an astonishing thing. That means that there's no realm of reality over which Jesus Christ is not the authority. It's very comforting. This is who you're trusting with all the challenges in your life. Worrying about an economic need that you don't see any way to be met. Worrying about a, 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 a wandering loved one that you can't be around and, and protect anymore. Worrying about some impending situation that threatens something precious in your life that you have no control over. Who has control over you and over all things? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's in authority over it all because he created it all. This is helpful because the enemy attacks the Christian in our soulish dimension in three ways. He attacks us through our emotions, our imaginations, and our situations, doesn't he? And he uses all of those to scream into our human ears that God is not with us, but that the devil is in great power. Tell me that hasn't been a temptation and, and a problem for you. Especially in these darkening days, there is this underlying unease that wickedness walks and evil grows and the wicked and evil one is on the march. No, he isn't. 
Whatever he does is under the express authority and permission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he cannot do what Christ doesn't sovereignly allow him in God's sovereign plan to do. 1 Peter chapter 3, please, verse 22. The scripture says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. That's ultimate authority with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Don't you let your emotions, your imaginations, or your situations tell you about spiritual reality. You live by faith in who is over it all. So, Jesus created both realms of all that is physical and spiritual. Secondly, reality two, all creation exists for Christ's glory, and one day he'll receive it. Go back to Colossians 1 and look at verse 16, and it says he created all these things, physical and spiritual, and all things were created through him. He was the power that did it, and for him, all creation exists for his glory. And one day, he's going to receive that glory, and all creation is going to be given back to him. The Bible says that all creation is now under temporary domination by a usurper named Satan, his demonic hordes, and sinful man. When Jesus comes back and judges the planet, all of those will be defeated, and Christ will receive again the glory and the magnificence of all that he ever created. That glory is coming. Philippians 2 says it this way. God exalted Jesus to the highest place after his crucifixion for us and his resurrection and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Notice physical reality, supernatural reality. He's over it all. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen. Why? Because Paul said Jesus created it And he's going to come back one day and receive it and make it all perfect again. And it will give him resounding glory. And every being at the end of time, physical humans or spiritual beings, angels and demons, people that know Jesus Christ and worship him or people that have rejected him and are heading for eternal torment, all in some magnificent moment of time, will bow the knee to Jesus Christ because he is the creator and the savior. All knees will bow, every single one. The question is, though you might defy him now, though you might even declare as the atheist in Psalm 14:1, the fool says, there is no God. You will one day bow and call him Lord because he's the creator and the preeminent one. The issue is, will you decide to do that now? Follow him and trust him. Or will you do it later under the weight of his glory, but with your future lost? C.S. Lewis wrote about the end of time and all people bowing the knee in this way. Quote, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without 
disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen. Whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment, he writes, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. End of quote. C.S. Lewis on preparing for the day when every knee will bow. Bow to him now. Come to him now. Non-believer, skeptic, confident spiritualist, come to Christ. Thirdly, reality three is he teaches that Jesus came from all eternity past to create everything in time and space. He goes on here in verse 17, and he is before all things. What's that mean? What I explained to you earlier, he is the eternal one. He never began. And when the Trinity decided to start what we call time and space, <laughs> he was there at that beginning. He came out of eternity to create time. He is before all things Translation, he is almighty God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The application here is that Jesus Christ is not a created being like the Colossian false teacher says. He's not someone you can invent or create as a concept in your mind like so many spiritual people that I meet today believe they can do. You have no authority to decide who God is or isn't. You have no ability to make that choice or design that image. That is mental idolatry. If you're a spiritualist and you believe that God is God as you understand him, that is the oldest lie in the book. <laughs> it started in the first part of Genesis when Satan began to inject into the mind of Eve the idea of God as he should be understood. It is a lie. God comes and reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. What will you do with him? Last reality, reality four, he teaches here that Jesus holds all material reality together for now. He holds all material reality together for now. This is verse 17, and he is before all things. He's eternal. He came and he started time at his pleasure and in him, all things hold together. Think about that. He holds all of creation together. Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, by the word of his power. Fantastic. Of course, if he's creator, of course, if, etern if he's eternal God, he holds it together by his mercy at his pleasure. He holds you together. Every atomic dimension of you. He holds this building in its place. He holds the laws of physics in their places that keep the planet humming and running. And one day he will let it all loose. It's interesting. Nuclear science essentially still claims today that the essential element of, of matter identified as the building block, if you will, is the atom. Constructed of three dimensions, the nucleus there with protons and neutrons and then electrons, electrons shooting around the outside. And of course, scientists have understood for years something called Coulomb's Law. It was found in the 1930s. 
that teaches that like charges of electricity and magnetism repel each other, and yet in the nucleus of the atom, the protons have a positive charge. Yes, class? Okay, just trust me. None of you guys went to that class, did you? Did you? Okay. Protons, positive charge. Neutrons, neutral charge. Neutrons. So the only charge in the nucleus of the atom is a continually positive charge. What does Coulomb's law say? Coulomb's law say? It says that, that like charges repel each other. And so scientists have always been puzzled at the fact that the nucleus of the atom, as it is constructed, should fly apart. <laughs> they don't know why it holds together. Strangely enough, they write, there's a second force in a nucleus that fights against the force that splits the atom, and it holds it together. Uh, they call it nuclear glue. That's true. Some others call it the strong force. Think about that. Eight years of college, including grad school, a bunch of alphabet letters after your name. And when it's all said and done, you come up with the phrase, oh, it's the strong force. They do not know how this continues to be. An atom is actually an explosion waiting to happen. One Christian physicist I read some time ago said, let me just solve this and give it the proper name. It's the Colossian force. What a gutsy Christian physicist and how right he was. The Bible says, Jesus Christ as the eternal one began all of time and space and matter, put all the laws into place, and in him all things hold together. He's the power over it all. So Jesus Christ holds all material reality together for now. What's the for now part? Well, 2 Peter, and I close with this, 2 Peter chapter 3, go there in your Bibles, 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about the moment when Jesus will let it all loose, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord, his return, when he comes back and judges the earth and desires to make all things new. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and my Bible says dissolved. It's the word luo I taught you about last week, the Greek word which means to let something loose, to take its bonds off, unloose its chains. God in, in Christ at the moment in time in the future is going to let the whole universe just dissolve. All the atoms will explode all the bonds of physical reality will be loosed. It'll all be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Jesus Christ holds it all together now, but one day he'll let it all loose in his destruction of sin and his curse on the planet and to clear the way for what Revelation 21 says is the new heavens and the new earth. Wow. That's the power of God, isn't it? Mm. By him all things consist. He upholds all things. What a mighty Lord. You might say, wow, that's a pretty big spectrum of Jesus. I've begun to see it. Well, if you're really getting it, maybe the question in your heart should be, how should you respond to this great Lord Jesus as a believer? Well, Peter anticipated your question in 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at the next verse, verse 11 of 1st. Pardon me, this is 2 Peter. I fully apologize. 2 Peter chapter 3, that's where I've been. In verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and since the world is heading to a point where Christ is going to dissolve it all and create a new heavens and new earth, 
He is sovereign God. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Two things that you need to to respond to this mighty Jesus with. Number one is holiness. He says it in verse 11. Follow him, obey him as the sovereign that he is. Jesus Christ is not an option. He's omnipotent. Jesus the creator is not an imagination in your mind. He is almighty God. And then secondly, live in hope. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you like living in this world? I don't because I know the world I was reborn for is coming. And I worship the master who will create it all. And I can't wait for the curtain to rise on that world. 